This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. It's an exciting one today as we have polymath Roy Bahat of Bloomberg Beta. In today's episode, Roy details out their unorthodox investment approach, how they've open-sourced their operating manual, what's working, what's not, the Comeback Cities Tour, where a group of San Francisco-based VCs got on a bus and toured the heartland, how that's impacted his investment approach, why they've decided to focus outside of San Francisco, and we wrap up with Roy's thoughts on the asset class and how it may change in the coming years. I don't think my team and I have had a more fun experience researching a guest. Uh, Roy has no shortage of personality, and it's on display today. Here's the interview with Roy Bahat. Head of Bloomberg Beta, Roy Bahat, joins us today from San Francisco. Bloomberg Beta is an early-stage venture capital firm with $150 million under management and only one LP. They invest in companies that make businesses work better with a focus on machine intelligence. Roy leads the effort after a series of experiences in nonprofit, professional services, city government, video games, academia, startups, and investing. Series is, I think, the kindest word ever used to describe <laughs> that mess, but thank you. Your LinkedIn profile is hilarious. We should talk thank about you. that in a bit, but... Roy also plays an active role in the Comeback Cities Tour with other West Coast-based VCs that are interested in the Midwest. He's here to talk about that today and much more. Roy, welcome to the program. Thank you. So let's get into it. Tell us about your winding road to venture. Well, I got offered my first job in technology in 1994 by a guy who ultimately became a VC who offered me a job writing HTML. And I looked at it. And I saw these blue links on a page. And I was like, this is stupid. This is definitely never going to go anywhere, which I guess goes to show you how much I know about technology. <laughs> and then I went to college during the period of like the dot-com boom, number one. And it all seemed so overdone to me that I definitely indulged. You know, the thing that people who are unfamiliar with startups have of like the inner skeptic is just so loud because you can see in all these things a thousand reasons they won't work. And especially if you're a person who likes to be analytical it's real easy to just look around and see a bunch of nonsense. And that's effectively what I saw everywhere around me. And one of my good, good friends from college started a custom t-shirt business. And I might've been the kind of stupid person who told him he was throwing his life away or some nonsense like that. That company is now called Custom Inc. and has done very, very well. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then basically I wandered in the wilderness, which is to say, I knew I wanted to do something. I'm definitely an action junkie. I saw how pivotal the media were in so many questions. And my experience in the media was that the business people held a lot of the cards. So I figured I should study something about this business thing. And then to make a long story short, 9-11 happened and I'm from New York. And I was like, my city just got attacked. Like I got to go serve it. And I'd always had an interest, but it was clear that 
the world. That was the time. And so I served in city government for four years in the Bloomberg administration. And it was amazing because I basically got a business education. My boss was a guy who'd run a private equity fund for 15 years or something like that. His boss was a founder who had built a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And Mike Bloomberg used to say then that the difference between business and government is that in business, it's dog eat dog. And in government, it's the other way around. You know, that was my experience is like a lot of the same principles of you're trying to create systems that work. You're trying to forge partnerships with people where risk gets shared in the right way. You're trying to conduct yourself honorably. You're trying to take smart risks. The customer base is different. But other than that, a lot of things are quite similar. And then the moment passed and I went to try to go be back in the business world. And the only company that hired me was News Corp. They had just bought, after serving there for a little bit in their kind of chairman's office, they had just bought a company in San Francisco that was an internet company. And I was like, well, I don't really, still not really that into this internet thing. But at this point, it was long past the crash and dot com 2.0, web 2.0 was coming back. It's like, oh, I figure I'll give it a shot. My wife and I just got married. And so we moved to San Francisco on six days' notice, thinking we'd be here for a year or two. And that was more than a decade ago. And I just went native as soon as I realized how quickly you can do exciting, powerful things with technology, when dusted off the part of me that like had gone to like a basic coding class when I was a kid and started trying to learn again and really immersed myself. And now I just feel like I just, despite myself, lucked out to be part of this industry that I really feel is central. Love it. So when did you start investing? Did you invest as an angel before? Uh, I did. I made a few personal investments. So I was running this company that was an online media business in the video games industry and called IGN. Basically, a project that we wanted to pursue didn't pan out. And I thought it was so much, the concept had so much potential that I quit and worked on it with a woman who, she was the CEO. We were co-founders together. And we built an Android-based game console. And so we started that company. It's called Ouya funded on Kickstarter, but also by VCs. And the whole way I made like an angel investment here and there and served on a couple boards. And to be honest, most of my experience with professional investors, which is to say people who invested somebody else's money for a living, some of it was exceptional, but most of it was really awful. Then I was going to go start another company and the Bloomberg guys approached me and said, Hey, we want to do a VC fund. My first reaction was like, no, you don't. You really don't. And (laughs) You know, corporate VC is like even worse. <laughs> and and then, you know, they said what I've now learned is a very Bloomberg thing is they said, well, okay, well, describe a way that it might work. And that's what we did is we sort of thought, okay, well, what could work? And we decided to go very early, which is still what we do, to invest only for financial return, not as a strategic, we're just an investor. And then a lot of the approach that we've taken is just to take things that we didn't like about how venture works and reverse them. So for example, one of the things I really didn't like is how hard it was to get information about venture capital funds. And so we aspire to be the most transparent fund and our operating manuals open sourced on GitHub. Another thing I didn't like is that it was always hard to figure out who had power and how the decision-making process worked. So our decision-making process is if any one of us says yes, we do a deal. You know, those are just examples. And I think that that adds up to just trying to really take to heart a thing that a lot of people I think now do that we just treat as religion, which is the founder is the customer. And we focus on, you know, our knitting is very narrow and we stick to it, which is to say we decided on the first day that the broad areas that we'd be interested in were all kind of the future of work, um, making businesses work better. And that's where we invest today. 
we changed and that AI became a more relevant technology. And one of my partners, again, over my objections, so again, you know, the theme is Roy really doesn't know and keeps lucking out. But <laughs> she said in, geez, I think it was like late 2013, even she said, we should really be focusing on AI. And my attitude was, you know, way too early. And then she started doing some research and found a couple thousand companies doing things in machine intelligence. And we just swam like a school of fish in that direction. And that's been our kind of main technology area, still all focused on the future work, trying to just spend every day serving the founders and connecting them to the kind of resources that we can, sort of the bigger, broader world outside of the narrow ecosystem of tech, which is part of what led us to this comeback cities thing. We could talk more about that, but that's been the joint. So you guys are true first check investors. That is our preference. We're not always the first check because companies have histories, but the earlier we can do it, nothing is too early for us. And we love being in from the beginning. And the reason is not so much because I can make like an economically rational argument for it. I mean, you and I were talking about how all funds kind of hand ring a little bit about, do they want to be bigger? You know, yep. more because it's the stage that we understand and it's what we like. And I feel like the later you go in a company's life, venture investing is always a mix of a financial transaction and a personal relationship. The later you go in a company's life, the more it becomes like a financial transaction and the less it becomes like a trusted relationship. Right. And if we want to serve founders as our customers, we kind of feel we need those relationships based on trust. And the earlier we go, the higher the chances of that. Yeah, you mentioned your approach in your operating manual on GitHub. Why did you guys choose to, to publish that? Mostly, so like, this is take a page from software engineers who have developed a lot of principles of how to work that function well. One of them is DRY, you know, don't repeat yourself. And so <laughs> I did not want to show up in meetings and bore myself giving the same speech about like, we invest between half a million and a million, blah, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. when it's not sensitive information. And I remember as a founder having these awful experiences where you ask somebody who's a precious you know, relationship of yours to introduce you to some investor. The investor agrees to talk because they maybe feel socially obligated to that person or something. You finally show up for the meeting and they're like, oh, you do that? Oh, we don't do that. That's like, well, what the hell? Why did I just go through all that? <laughs> when we published it, it goes into a lot of detail. I mean, everything from our investing criteria to geography. You know, I probably include a link to it in an email to somebody five to 10 times a day. It goes through a lot of stuff. And the reason is so that Founders don't have to waste their time. Founder time is the most precious thing in the whole startup world. And so if they can see it and say, oh, not a fit, whether because they don't like our approach or we're not a match for what they're doing or whatever, then they can just go off and do their own thing. I don't get why so many VCs hide behind a website where they don't provide any information on their investment criteria. So you know uh, what I think about that? I have a hypothesis, which yeah. is in a lot of ways, the VC industry is the legacy of the private equity industry yes. in terms yeah. of how it was born. Private equity funds, I don't know very well, but I know that there are all kinds of rules around what you're allowed to disclose as a fund. And I think those rules, like compliance, led to extreme conservatism about disclosure. And as a result, the safest thing was sometimes to say nothing. It's a shame. Yeah. I also think that we have the benefit of being an attacker, which means we can start with a very clear and focused strategy. You know, we're a company that sells money. And so we're attacking an industry, whereas the incumbents have a much more generally varied and diverse strategy. And so it's like, right. well, how do you describe things that like this partner who started investing in 1988? Well, things he likes, 
you know, that's not like criteria. Right. And so we had the advantage of being able to, and it was a lot of work to get specific on it, a lot of debates that we still have as a partnership. But I think being new has its advantages. It's such an advantage. I mean, not just going on the attack, but just publicizing your investment criteria on our website. We have all our stuff on Newstack VC. Yeah. The entrepreneurs that reach out, I mean, it's already pre-vetted if it's a fit, right? Series A entrepreneurs are not reaching out typically. And then the really thoughtful entrepreneurs are actually going through all the things we list out and they're talking about how, you know, totally. they fit in. So it's it's a really nice filtering mechanism as well. Yeah. Put differently, like it's a check on whether the founder is doing their homework. Right. And I have mixed feelings about it because there are definitely some kinds of domains where the founder not doing their homework kind of doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And others, which tend to be the ones that we invest in, which is say, if you're selling things to businesses, usually preparing is a good idea. And so it's just <laughs> nice to see that there's some way. I love also interview processes when you can find a way to make the get to know you process simulate the job, the actual relationship. It's just like that for this, which is you want a founder who's going to prepare, give them an opportunity to try to prepare before reaching out to you and see if they do. Right. Right. With Bloomberg Beta so far, what, what's worked and what hasn't? Great question. So I'll start with the haven'ts. When we started the fund, in part because I was a founder and in part because I wanted to go early, we were one of these many, many funds or vehicles, because some of them aren't even funds, that say, oh, we're going to invest, but we're also going to build stuff. You know, we're going to make our own things and we're going to incubate them. What I remembered is the superhuman levels of intensity and effort required to do that. I was a new investor, and although my partners had much more investment experience and we're an equal partnership where we all learn from each other and any one of us can say yes, and that's all great, except that I recognized how much I had to learn, and so I wanted to focus. And so we dropped that part of it, the building part. Now, we still build software for ourselves, and we occasionally can't help ourselves and do a side project and have some partners that we you know, love to work with on that stuff, but in general, we have dropped the, the part of our thesis that was to create companies. Got and it. What, what has worked is a much tougher question because who knows, right? I mean, you've right. got to wait a decade in venture. The way I describe venture is, you know, I forget, there's some quote from a VC, maybe it's Bill Gurley or somebody who, you know, brilliant guy. And he said something like, well, it isn't a home run business. It's a grand slams business. I don't even think it's a grand slams business. I think that it is so concentrated in the outliers that VC is a business that is about the tape measure distance of your longest home run, the balls travel through the air for a decade. Or if you invest as early as we do, 12 to 14 years, maybe. And so you're just staring there and it's like, I don't know what works. So, (laughs) you know, paper value looks good, but what is paper value? It's a measure of the fundraising market, really, and the opinions of other VCs. And so the, the other thing that I think really works is we decided as part of our effort to treat founders as our customers to use net promoter score of founders for us as the one guiding metric for the activities of our fund. And that's been magnificent. Yeah, it's really given us actionable feedback whenever we survey on it. You know, it gives us a way of resolving. You know, you have a lot of these things that happen in business life or just life, which is what I call a right versus right dispute of like, well, we could do X, which would be good because maybe to make more money or why, which could be good because of, you know, some other reason. And they're both good. And NPS gives us a great yardstick to use for making those choices. 
So is it NPS of founders on other founders? Or? No, no, on us. It's on you guys. Okay, got it. Yeah, they're got creating it. our customer service. Now, what that doesn't get at is do we pick well? Do we source well and all that stuff? But that can only, I think, the unfortunate thing about venture is you can only find that out ultimately over a very long period of time and over many investments. So I just don't think there is a good way to know right out of the gate whether or not you know what you're doing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I was just talking to David Cohen about a startup we were talking to and we had made them an offer to lead the round. And this other big firm came in, more of a a brand name firm came in and offered to lead. And so we thought we were SOL, but fortunately I I asked the founder to call some founders, do some reference checks and they didn't come back good on the other guys and they came back good on us and we led the round. That's amazing. Another fortunate thing I would say about being new in our industry is a lot of the incumbents have lived through periods where they had a lot more power than they do today. And so therefore they kind of, I don't want to say they misbehaved because it wasn't like always, I mean, sometimes it was, but it wasn't always like bad action, if you will, but it was frequently just stuff that wouldn't fly today. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that's an advantage for us is, you know, we have a consistent track record of at least trying to serve the customer. Yeah. Especially the young, the young hustlers in the business. I mean, you have to over deliver to some degree to, uh, I I actually think the hardest and most valuable thing is serving experienced founders because they kind of know the basics. Therefore the level of game required is so high. I mean, one of, we've got a couple founders in their fifties. I don't think we've backed anyone in their sixties yet, although I'd love to. So I've got to tell you, like, I think it's such a joy backing (laughs) those founders because they really know what they're doing. And so then delivering value is harder and that's more fun. Sounds like you're having fun, but I I did want to ask. I am having fun. I really am. I've read quite a bit of your work and it sounds like you've struggled figuring out what you wanted to do for a living for a time. Do you think you figured it out? Yes. I love what I do and I want to, this is the first time in my life I've ever been able to say it. This is the first job I've had where I don't want another job. Like I'm happy to do this for the foreseeable future. I love doing it here. You know, Bloomberg has been exceptionally supportive, really interested in technology. You know, we work closely with the engineering teams in particular, but many parts of the business who just have like lots of genuine curiosity. And curiosity is a great accelerant for startup learning. You know, so it's been fun. I started out with misgivings because I like didn't really love the idea of like being thought of as a VC, you know, going to the dark side. But I got over it because I realized I'm in a customer service business where I admire my customers. And now I'm totally into it. You know, the struggles that came before, I think, was just a matter of wandering and not quite ever hitting on it yet. Yeah. And not that I didn't have great experiences. I did. I had some awful ones, too. But I mostly had really great experiences with great people. It just took some time. So I want to talk about comeback cities a bit. Yeah. So a bunch of VCs get on a bus, SF-based VCs travel around the middle of the country. Yes. Tell us about the experience and you know why you and others came to the Midwest. And well, sort it's of- okay. Let me zoom out for a second and describe how we got there in the first place. Yeah. And then I'll tell you about the experience. So one of the principles of our fund has been that if there's one risk to companies that they underestimate in the beginning that hits them once they're successful, it's narrow thinking. And the hard thing is early startups have to focus and therefore they have to be narrow in a certain sense. So we don't want them going around, you know, meeting with every random person who might be interesting to them in the future. But our view is that that's one of the areas where we as a fund can come in is helping to create bridges 
with other walks of life that might help founders think differently, in particular in the domain that we're in, which is the future of work. One of the major areas was just kind of what's the future of the economy of our country going to look like? And, you know, what policy solutions, what cultural solutions, what business solutions do we need to have? We did this project for a year with a nonprofit called New America, which was fantastic, to do scenario planning for the 10 to 20 year effect of AI, of machine intelligence and other technology on work in the United States. You know, I learned a ton in doing it, built a ton of relationships with people. And one of the things that came out of it is we'd start talking to people in government about what we learned about work. And one of the guys that we met was a congressman named Tim Ryan, who represents Youngstown and other places in Ohio. So at the end of the meeting, I remember he said, well, so what's your ask? I don't have an ask. I just want you to understand this stuff so you can make good laws. And, (laughs) you know, and, uh, you know, I get that's obviously not frequent to show up, you know, without an ask. But then at the end of the meeting, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, do you think investors who do what you do, where you do it would be interesting and like come into our, you know, the district that I'm from in that region and just seeing what's going on? And without hesitation, I said yes, because I know we in Silicon Valley are desperate to understand other, the best of us are desperate to understand other forms of innovation other than the one particular variation that exists in San Francisco. And I think it's a moment in our country where there's just a lot of desire for many people to understand places that they're just not as familiar with. And I'd never been to Youngstown, but I called around to a bunch of VCs. And fortunately, the response rate was extraordinary. And the group was really amazing. It was a group of investors who was diverse as far as stage, everything from you know, multi-billions to teeny-weeny, diverse as far as personal background, gender, race, et cetera, and diverse as far as politics, but also just thoughts and perspectives on the world. And so we all then got in this bus with the congressman and the the congressman who represents much of Silicon Valley, Ro Khanna, and we went around to five cities, basically meeting with local entrepreneurs and investors and just trying to learn about what it would take to get more capital flowing from established startup ecosystems. It wasn't just Silicon Valley. We had some New York investors with us as well to other places around the country, starting with the Midwest, the heartland. You know, in principle, the idea is if it can work in one place, you know, maybe it can work in multiple places and we can find a way to scale. And the irony, I'll just say, is that our fund didn't invest and still doesn't invest directly any place outside of the Bay Area in New York. I mean, we do occasionally when there's an exception, but that's really our focus. And the reason is because I think there are great investors in all these other places. So I don't think I can win. And I don't like to do games where I don't at least have a shot of winning. And so we did find others we want to collaborate with. And maybe that turns into stuff down the line. The intent really wasn't, though, to source investment opportunities. It was to learn. Got it. And so, you know, our mutual friend, Scott Chain, I uh, pinged him and asked him, you know, what questions I I should ask you. And he wanted me to ask you how the tour led to a venture fund. Yeah. So very explicitly, when I invited everybody on the VC side, we said, this is a no next steps expected kind of a thing. Because we've all been on things where, you know, the soft expectations, you'll have a plan and next steps. And, and I believe yeah. that sometimes that's necessary because you want action. And sometimes you want to take off the pressure. You just want to learn without thinking what's going to be asked of me. And so this was very much like that. And then some point through the trip, a couple of the people on started saying, hey, I think we might actually want to figure out if there's a way to formalize our involvement in putting money to work 
in this ecosystem and being supportive. And why don't we just start, you know, very typical Silicon Valley approach. Why don't we just start small and execute and iterate? Cyan Bannister talked about it as she's from Founders Fund. And yeah. one of the other investors who was along on the trip, this guy, Robert Wolf, who was an investment banker in New York and now has a fund that advises and invests based in New York. A few others basically just started talking about it. Then we basically said, let's put a few million dollars into a fund led by somebody who is in the place where we want to invest and where we as investors commit to create relationships between the companies that that person invests in and those who we know, whether it's mentors. I mean, you know, we spent some time in Flint, Michigan, and it was the most harrowing experience I've ever had as an American, just seeing what was there. And then I just thought, how many founders would just love to be a mentor or just a sounding board to somebody starting a business in Flint. And my guess is that many would. And then we saw ecosystems that are really, I think, thriving like South Bend, not too far from where you are in Chicago. And it was just easy to imagine all the ways to work together. In fact, one of the um, investors on our trip, woman who runs Basis Set Ventures, which is an enterprise-focused AI fund, one of the companies she invested in actually, part because of the relationships from the trip, opened a second office in South Bend. So the idea was to just create a node that could collect some of that bridging, if you will. And the hardest part was to find somebody to run it. And then Scott Shane, who been an active angel investor among other roles, sent me an email shortly after the trip sort of saying, hey, can we talk on the phone? And how do we you know, can extend on the trip? And in typical Silicon Valley transactionalism, I was like, well, I can't talk on the phone. But we have this thing going. And, you know, if you're interested in talking about that, and then basically he came to life and just had idea after idea and practical can-do spirit and overcoming obstacles because nothing, even something small is easy. And so now he is leading what we are calling comeback capital. And we are proud to be LPs in his fund. And we think of it as a demo fund in the sense that the goal of the fund is to discover a template that we can repeat and scale up. It's awesome. Scott's a great guy. He's a He's yeah, a, yeah. Tell a, me about working with him. <laughs> so what surprised you most on the trip? Ooh, good question. Well, I wrote a piece for Recode on kind of observations on the trip. I would say it was less about shock than it was about painting in a picture. Like if I tell you, hey, you're going to go on, I don't know, making something up, a roller coaster, and it's going to be thrilling. You're like, okay, I get it, it'll be thrilling. And then you won't be surprised that it's thrilling, but seeing it come to life and experiencing it will give you so much of a sense of like, what is that thing actually? And so seeing the range of concept that we saw being worked on and the fact that there were not just one, but many alternative models to the typical, you know, I call it the typical Silicon Valley of throw a Hail Mary to a unicorn. The fact that there were so many alternatives to that play was just, it just expanded my imagination. Awesome. Can we talk a bit about your focus on machine intelligence and the future of work? Because I know you guys at Bloomberg Beta have this focus on the future of work. Mm -hmm. The next few years, how do you see developments in machine intelligence impacting this category? So I think the single biggest axis for development is not the technology of machine intelligence advancing, although that will influence the very biggest technology companies, companies like Google and Bloomberg and Facebook, et cetera. I think the single biggest spread we'll see in the world is just the propagation of simple, well-understood machine intelligence techniques, the number one of which is just a simple regression analysis. Mm -hmm. 
invading more and more parts of business. I think as a modern corporate world, don't really know how to use software. I mean, even simple things like statistical thinking are very uncommon. Not the statistical thinking is simple, but even simple statistical thinking is still very uncommon in the modern organizational world. You know, the man in the gray flannel suit, you know, still controls too much of how corporations work. And I think we'll start to see organizations where software keeps propagating and it sounds boring, but that's going to be the axis. And so we think about, I call it, my partners don't love it, but I call it little machine intelligence, which is to say applied examples of things where the data is special and the problem is special and the opportunity is special, but the technology may or may, every technology requires lots of work to apply it, but the, call it the academic invention aspect, the science invention part of the technology is not where most of the risk lies. Got it. I'll give you an example of that. Yeah. You know, we invested in a company in Seattle called Textio that is a word processor that instead of checking spelling, which is an error you've already made, predicts the future and tells you about an error you might make. For example, it'll say as you're editing a job description, hey, change this word and you can get higher quality applicants to apply. Change this phrase. You can get more women to apply based on data from other job descriptions. And when I met the founders for the first time, I said, are you guys inventing new technology or just bringing it to market. And a lot of founders love to believe that they're doing something heroic, which but being a founder is heroic in virtually every case. But a lot of cases, founders love to believe they're doing something heroic, whether or not they are. And in this case, they're like, no, 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 we're just bringing it to market. You know, Most of this has been invented. We need to do a lot of work to bring it to life. And they're right. They just won, by the way, best company to work for in their size category in the state of Washington. So they definitely worked hard at creating something special. But what they created that was special was not scientific invention. Love it. Are there other applications? I'm sure there are of what they're doing beyond. uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've already moved into email, marketing emails, recruiting marketing emails, and they're going to keep expanding. You know, augmented writing is the kind of idea. And you know, we invest in robotics companies that use commodity components to provide something really useful. The kind of the building blocks are set. VC is not the source of innovation. We harvest the last 18 months yep. required. You know, government invests in fundamental scientific research at universities and at big companies invest in long-term research. We come at the end of the process. And I think it's just important to be humble and understand that we are not the Damocles sword of innovation, <laughs> that we are literally just picking up the last piece. Somebody left the plug on the floor. We just stretch the cord a little further to plug it in the socket. You know, that's what we do for a living. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. 
And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So speaking of VC, what do you think about the asset class and how it's changing and it may change over the next few years? So I struggle to answer this question. The reason why is that I'm convinced I see such a small portion of the market that any investor sees such a small portion of the market that it's kind of like going to your local supermarket and picking out some delicious fruit and being asked what's going on with the world fruit industry. (laughs) And I just don't know. I guess I'll put it slightly differently, which is I believe there's huge potential still. I still believe we're fundamentally at the beginning of the technology wave. I think that the model of taking risks on people to back them is one we're just starting to figure out. People say, oh, the asset class is overcrowded. It's like, yeah, if you're chasing the same nine deals started by a three-time founder between Howard Street and Folsom Street in San Francisco, sure, then the market's super crowded. Mm-hmm. If you are thinking about other places, other models, other industries, you know, we love boring industries. If you told me that one of the most valuable companies in our portfolio, not boring at all to me anymore, would be a, a freight forwarder, you know, a shipping broker, I'd have laughed at you. But that <laughs> is indeed the world in which we live. Part of that is just personality of optimism, and part of it is I just have to admit I doubt that I have enough data. And I think one of the cool things about tech is that people in tech tend to think incredibly logically and abstractly about problems, which is why they often see new solutions. The problem with that is like every strength that has a weakness associated with it, and the weakness of that way of thinking is that you tend to get in these total views of the world where, well, if I've thought about the logic and it's logical to me, it must therefore be correct. So a lot of people will reason from analogies and their personal experience and venture capitalists are no different. You know, they'll see a thousand deals or 5,000 deals in a year and they'll assume they've seen enough of the market because the market as they define it is small. I just don't want to play that game. I think it's the same reason why a lot of startups and venture firms have had such ethical challenges, challenges with their social engagement is that they convince themselves based on their own narrow experience that what they're doing must be the right way to look at things without the humility and imagination to say, hey, we don't know. And we're just trying to figure it out. And there's lots of stuff out there in the world. But easier said than done, right? Like, how how do you keep an open mindset and not let whatever criteria maybe you guys have published on Git get in the way of the next great founder? Please ask my wife because she's (laughs) telling me I've not figured this out and she's right. I think that it starts with wanting to be wrong. Like, of course, we all want to be right, really. Like, we want to pick things correctly. Mm -hmm. But if you act based on wanting to be right, then you prove yourself to be right as often as you want. You do motivated cognition, you know, where you assign reasons to things based on what you wish were true. But if you want to be wrong and you take the attitude of a scientist practicing the scientific method, which is you've got hypotheses and you can never prove them, you can only disprove them, and you go around looking for the opposite evidence, then at least you're more open to it. So that's one thing. The second thing is seeking out as wide a range of experiences as possible. I mean, I have little kids and so I really try to avoid travel as much as possible. It was so important to me to go to Flint and Youngstown and Akron and South Bend and Detroit because I recognize how different 
a little bit of knowledge might be about places other than my own for expanding my thinking. It's one of the reasons why diversity and inclusion are so important Mm -hmm. is those are all different ways of incorporating knowledge, like different life experiences make us better in the startup world at what we do because we're a world that is fueled on learning. It's an amazing feeling when you sit across from a founder and they totally change your perspective. It's the best. It's like, wow. What's, what, just so I can stop you for a second, what's even better than that, I think, is once you get to know that founder and then six months later, they change their perspective because they've learned something new and rechange your perspective and are not just addicted to it. I mean, Jeff Bezos has this line about smart people change their minds a lot. Yeah. And I really buy that because I think you get new information and none of us is smart enough to really understand how the world works. The world is too complicated. We can have approximations for a period of time and we can do our best. Ultimately, we can never know what we don't know, but if we assume there's a large unknown unknown out there and go chasing it, well, then you gradually start to shine light in places where it wasn't lit before. It's part of the reason why this job is so exciting every day. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. Hopefully your wife hasn't convinced you to switch allegiances to the Packers yet. She has, let's put it this way, we're not, if there were a team, we'd be wearing cheese on our heads, but we're not a family football team. But if we did, let's put it this way, we go to a Badger game once a year. That's about, you know, that's about where it comes in for us. Love it. Roy, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Ooh, good question. Hmm. So there's a bunch of things that I'm curious about that I've never been able to get at. One is who the earliest investors and in funds are. Like who says yes first what, as far as LPs and funds? Mm. What does that whole world look like? Because I know that's very difficult. It's just not a part of the world that we live in. The other is I'm super curious, especially because of where you are, about companies that have multiple locations early on or experiment with partially remote, partially in person, you know, my views on that keep changing and I'm just trying to get more information. So I think it'd be great to have almost roundtables on that kind of thing as opposed to any one person. I mean, I think the thing about our modern industry is that any one person usually already has a microphone. So, you know, you can get to know them, but it's more about topics that I'd love to hear people riff on. Great. Roy, what investor has influenced you most? I would say my partners, James Cham and Karen Klein, have definitely influenced me the most. They both came to this with much more experience than either I or Siobhan Zillis, who was another partner with us, have brought to it. And so there's just a lot of learning in it for me. And I'm really lucky to have them as my colleagues. I've learned a lot from Siobhan too, especially about machine intelligence. But those are the two who I've learned the most from. Earlier, you had mentioned productivity and how you're really focused on that. Are there any productivity hacks that, that you use on a day-to-day oh, basis? Tons, that, tons, tons, give, tons. Give us some tips, quick product. ones. You know, it's funny because I don't even remember which ones of them are hacks because I've incorporated them into my way of being. <laughs> what I will say is this. Inbox zero twice a day. Yep. Batching emails as much as possible has completely changed my way of doing things. We absolutely love finding, I think it's less hacks in some ways than it is tools. And what I mean by that is the following. And I wrote about this once. People talk about, oh, organizations are changing and, and everything is now fluid. And you know, we went through this thing that was a, uh, a training on new methods of organization called holacracy, which I probably, probably some people have read about. Mm-hmm. And 
at the end of the two days of holacracy, non-hierarchical leadership training, I asked them, how do you implement this complicated system? And they said, oh, well, you just use our software. It's called GlassFrog. I was like, well, why did you even put us through training? Just give me the software. And if I use it, I'll be using your system. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I do think they you know, could reverse the emphasis and it would work just as well or really well. You know, I think about a lot of tools that I rely on on a daily basis, like Workflowy, which is an outlining tool, but you really, it's a list maker that allows you to keep nested lists nested within lists of everything. You know, we are Google suite addicts, obviously Slack, in which, you know, we have a small stake is another. And we like write little bits of glue script to automate our own activities. Like, I, you know, sometimes the way I put it is I am my CRM's mechanical Turk because it just tells me what to do a lot of the time. And it tells me what to do because I programmed it in the past. So a lot of it is just systematizing things by picking the right tools as opposed to, oh, well, every day I look to the right for 25 seconds while I flip my, you know, I don't know, my <laughs> Pomodoro timer upside down and that makes me more productive. Like I've just never been able to get any system like that to really work. It has to be dead easy for me. And so it's more about what tools I choose than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. What CRM do you guys use, by the way? You know what? I'm not sure that the guy who makes it would become oh. saying the name, but I'll tell you, I'll describe it. And then separately, I'll ask him. He's a one person shop who I, makes a CRM for private equity and venture capital. I know and this. And we love it. And we just switched for our own company contact list to Affinity after trying a few different options. I admit we're biased. We're not the target market, but we are investors in. CRMs that are for other target markets. You know what? I won't go through them because I don't want to just talk my book for the sake of answering your question. <laughs> but we use two, one for deals and one for people. I think I know the one you're talking about, but we'll save that for another time. And just to wrap up here, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Honestly, if you could use any platform on the internet and you can't find me, please tell me because I should be there. And if you can't find me on the major platforms, then you need to look for another profession because I'm very findable. But I'm on Twitter all the time, you know, Roy Bahat. And I'll also just add another thing that I think would be fascinating to hear from people on is their own tools. Like what do VCs and founders use every day? And people who have thoughtfully assembled their personal productivity stack I always learn a lot from hearing how people think about that. Yes, yes. That's why I asked. We don't really talk about the nuts and bolts very often. We run this monthly event for founders that we call Turpentine Talks, and they're founder-to-founder kind of practical learning, and it's named after this Picasso quote where Picasso says something like, it's the art critics who, when they get together, talk about form and structure and meaning, the big ideas. When real artists get together, they talk about where do you buy the cheap turpentine. Yes, yes. It's all about the nuts (laughs) and bolts. Awesome. Well, Roy, this has been a real pleasure. Really appreciate the transparency and clearly everything you're doing with the Comeback Cities Tour. We continued and would love to find things that we can collaborate with you. And anything you see out there that we do that you think we're doing wrong, please tell us. And here's to more excuses in the future. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Roy. Appreciate it. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further... You can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Mm-hmm.